0: Have your Bibles, and I hope you do turn to Obadiah. Turn to Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament, with the biggest one of, but with a big background. I shouldn't say the biggest, a big background. Now on your uh, on your table, for those of you like charts, enjoy. Those of you don't, you know, you could I don't know write down what you want to have for lunch on the back of this. Here's some uh, overview charts to help you see the connection in this little book. You know what's fun about Obadiah, and it's like the, the one of the shortest books in the New Testament is 3 John, is that you have a complete book and you can really analyze these things that often you get lost in Ezekiel and Isaiah. But if you can begin to see how the Holy Spirit uses prophetic books like Obadiah, you can better understand the bigger books. And so there is poetry. There are some, there's play on words. There are connections that are just huge in these books. And these kind of charts can help you with that. Now, You're there in Obadiah. We're in verses 11 through 14. Let me read 1 through 14 to just get us into the book. I hope you've read the book numerous times. Read it again a few more times. So let's look at Obadiah beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God. Notice, Lord, small caps, sovereignty, God, caps, Yahweh, the sovereign promise keeper, here's what he says concerning Edom. The only prophecy that's really focused on just one Gentile nation. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, now here's the day of doom day is mentioned only in verse 8. Here's Edom's day of doom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, in the loftiness of your dwelling places, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined! Would they not steal only until they had enough? In other words, they would leave a little if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? In other words, there'd be something left. Oh, how Esau, forefather of Edom. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasure searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, the day of doom for Edom, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, major city in Edom, in order that everyone may be cut off, From the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Whoa, why this day of doom? Verse 10. Because of violence to your brother Jacob. Jacob, forefather of Israel and Judah. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Why? Why is that? Here it comes. Verse 11. On that on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah, the tribe from which the king "...of Israel, the king of the earth, will come. Don't rejoice over them in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster." Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Wow. Obadiah, verses 10 through 14. We looked last week that this was Judah's day of discipline. They're not going to be utterly destroyed like Edom. See verse 9 And everyone will be cut off. No, but they are being disciplined. They're being humbled because they have disobeyed the Lord their God. Last week, we looked at the circumstances of Judah's day of discipline. And we said there's two things going on. Judah's unfaithfulness, that's why they're being disciplined, but also Edom's unbrotherliness. As God brought his discipline, Edom came in and took advantage. And that's what is being revealed in verses 11 through 14. And then we saw, and were reminded in verse 10, the cause of Edom's doom. The reason they are doomed. And this is so profound. It's because, hey, as a nation, you brought violence, you took advantage, you shamefully pounced when you should have shown pity to your brother nation this blows my mind about obadiah because it just it it takes god's teaching to a level that we don't think about how one nation treats another nation is important to god and even greater than that how you treat god's people and we know that the nation of israel is is being hardened and someday it will be restored But right now, the people of God is the church. And how nations treat the church, they will be held accountable for that. And so there's the idea. The cause is, and notice, the proof of Edom's proud heart is in the way they treated their brother nation, Judah. And so bring this chart up. I just want to show you this connection. A lot of the prophet's teaching is in a judicial manner because the judge... Of the nations is predicting judgment. And so, if you were reading this as an Israelite, you would see, oh, this is like legal talk, okay? This is legal talk. And so, in Obadiah 1 through 9, the sovereign sentencing here's your sovereign sentence, Uh, here's the punishment that's gonna come due to your proud heart. But then in verse 10, he identifies, the judge identifies, the reason you're going to get this sentence is because of this shameful crime. You have done unbrotherly violence, one nation to another nation. And then in verses 11 through 14, the judge brings the shocking indictment. And he goes through in 11 through 14 and says, you're going to be doomed because you did this. But you not only did this, you did this. And you not only did that, you did this. But you even went further and you did this. And it's like, whoa, who does that to their brother? Who does that? And God says, you don't do it, and I care about it. So that's the, the, the way these, these uh, verses connect to one another. And we said that basically the ultimate crime is Edom failed to be their brother's keepers. Therefore, they're going to be loser weepers on the day of their doom. All right. And so, you know, we know finder's keepers, loser weepers. Well, if you don't be your brother's keepers, you're going to be a loser. Weepers, And we said, what is brotherliness? And I I spent some more time trying to hone this. It's acting towards someone I am physically or spiritually related to in a way that God condemns as unjust and unmerciful. Does that help? Okay, and the reason I put physical in there is because Edom and Judah are not spiritually equal. Judah is God's covenant people. Edom is a pagan nation, and yet this pagan nation is accountable for how they're treating their blood, brother, nation. And so acting towards someone in a relation to God's standard that is unjust and unmerciful, and that's really what violence means. Violence, that word violence means you have been unjust, but even more so you have lacked mercy when people needed it the most. And then I kind of try to make it simple for you and I in the sense of here's the heart of unbrotherliness. Here's the heart of the message of Obadiah. Being too proud to humble myself to show covenant mercy to others in their misfortune. Too proud of heart. To show covenant mercy. What God requires, the mercy God requires from me in this relationship, I'm too proud to humble myself and pity those who need pity. And to show mercy. Now listen, I get all passionate about this book because it reveals the inner workings of my heart that need uh, repentance and confession, because these are white collar sins I call these white collar sins, in other words, you can do them, and other Christians will ignore you you know uh, they 're not overt you know they 're not you know okay we don 't do what the pagans do we don 't do what the unbelievers do, so we 're okay no we 're not okay. we do this all the time, we do this all the time, we do this with memes and with uh, tweets and with texts. And we do it often alone and in our heart. So I'm just asking, I'm begging God that His Holy Spirit would do an inner work in my heart and your heart to expose this, to convict us of this, to be more aware of being unbrotherly. And so last week we talked about the connection the connection to our potential day of doom or our potential day. If we're unsaved and we act this way, we're going to have a day of doom of eternal judgment. If we're saved and we act this way, we're going to get divine discipline. And you see there in your notes, the really question comes down to, am I proud? And you say, how do I know? Well, I'd encourage reading Philippians 2, do you relate to others with Christ-like humility? And then, who is my brother? You know, it's like the the parable of the of the uh, uh, pious person who wanted to evade Jesus' teaching. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, let me get let me let's talk about that. Well, who's my brother? Well, let's define it. What are my covenant relationships? Physical family by blood, marriage, or adoption. So you can apply Obadiah to parent and children. I had a young dad. Uh, of, of, of kids come up to me last week after the lesson and say, man, I so appreciate that lesson because we're always working with our kids to be brotherly and sisterly to one another. And I thought, wow, great application. That's exactly where this is. Parent, child, siblings, but even relatives. But then think about spiritual family. We are related by Christ's blood, are we not? We're in covenant relationship, not only as believers in the body of Christ, but as church members who have made a covenant to be members of this church and behave brotherly and sisterly with one another. And then even in friendships, you know, we taught the teens a couple weeks ago, I taught them that David and Jonathan made a covenant of friendship. And so there's all sorts of places. Now, here's the deal. Am I unbrotherly? That's the question. Not are other people, because anytime you start dealing with pride and heart sins, what do we immediately do? We have this reflector that says, oh, Jeremy really needs this one. I hope he's listening. Let's see, who else? oh, oh, Dana back there, look at her. I think she needs this. Hope she's taking notes. And then we rub her neck and see if she is taking notes because she really needs that. And I'm asking you to turn this and beg the Holy Spirit to shine it on my heart and shine it on your heart. Amen. Because that's what pride wants to do. It wants to deflect. Okay. So I can't go through all of your covenant relationships and give you specific application. It's hard enough for me to discern my own failings, much less for me to know yours. But what I want to do today is look at the application of these verses, 10 through 14. Look at these applications and give you a warning for the proud and hope for the humble. So here's the warning for the proud from these verses, and it really comes down to this. Verses 10 through 14 The warning to us is, you are your brother's keeper. So when our proud hearts say, like Cain, so many thousands of years ago, am I my brother's keeper? God says to each of us, you are, you are, you are, you are. So the warning is, you are your brother's keepers. Now, what's that mean? First of all, he shows us the proud progression from bitter root to brutal fruit. So, in verses 1 through 9, we see the bitter root of a proud heart. But in verses 10 through 14, we see the brutal fruit of that proud heart. Now, we've seen this progression, and I took a lot of time to lay it, and I know, you know, we, we we make fun of me, and I get it. But here's the point: when when Obadiah says may says Edom is Esau, he expects you to know that background. And when you know that background, when he says Edom is Esau, you're like, whoa! It has more profound. It has more meaning. Has more application. So we saw this proud progression from bitter fruit to brutal. Uh, a bitter root to brutal fruit in the relationship of Esau and Jacob, did we not? Okay, so Esau got bitter because he he sold his birthright, he despised it, and we ended the story of Esau to where he says, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to wait until mom and dad are dead, which is so interesting because you never outgrow your parents. I'm going to wait until mom and dad are dead and then I'm going to kill him. Okay? We also trace that proud progression in the national history of Edom and Judah. And all throughout their history, as Jeremiah says, there has been eternal enmity between Edom and uh, Judah. So here's the principle for you and I. So what's the application for us? Families and entire nations pass on the bitter root. And brutal fruit of a proud heart. And that should humble all of us. Entire nations and individual families can pass on a proud heart that passes on a bitter root that will lead to brutal fruit. Now, I gave you a little chart there to show you the connection of this. So notice in that chart, uh, yeah, I guess I have it right here. The bitter root and brutal fruit of a proud heart. The cause is in Obadiah 1 through 9. The effect is in 10 through 14. The cause is a proud heart. The effect is unbrotherly violence. The beginning of it is a passive attitude. I'm not hurting anyone. No one can see my heart. You know, who says I'm proud? You know, it's all passive, but it's there, and it's growing, and it's deadly, it's ugly, and it's evil. And then it ends up being active aggression. Now, does that mean everybody's going to go kill their sibling like Cain did? No, no. Does that mean every nation is going to declare war and do all the things Edom does? No. But I tell you where that active aggression comes out, it comes out of the mouth. And we can cut people down. We'll see this in James in, the, in a couple of weeks. We can cut people down and murder and slay them with our mouth. And that active aggression is all taking root in this passive pride. And so you see the bitter root internally bears brutal fruit externally. And it can literally divide families. It can divide churches. And it can cause nations to go to war. And it all starts in here. All starts in here. So that's the proud progression. Now, here's our gracious God. Too often we think of God's sovereignty without realizing that that sovereign God is also a gracious God. And so notice the second thing. God graciously warns us, don't go down this proud progression. God graciously warns us not to go down this proud progression. Now, here's what I want you to see in verses. uh, It begins in verses 12 through 14. In three verses... Eight times. Do you see do not, do not, do not. Now, this is where, this is why prophetic books blow your mind. Because God is the Lord God, the sovereign promise keeper. And he sees the beginning from the end. And he, so here's what happens. Verses 1 through 9, in verses 1 through 9, he predicts future judgment But he talks about it like it already has happened. That's why these books get confusing. So here comes the judgment verses 1 through 9. Here's what's going to happen, but I'm talking like it already has happened. Why? Because when God says it, it's as good as done. Now, you know what he does in 10 through 14? He's rehearsing the past sins of Edom on Israel's day of discipline. He's talking about their past sin, but he acts like he's right there saying to them, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's like he gives them eight red lights. And his point is this, here's what you did in the past, but when you were doing it, I was right there graciously warning you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. So when you read this, it's like, do not. It's like he's talking to them in the present. And he's like, no, this is what you did in the past. But understand this, though I am sovereign over the nations, I want every nation to come to me. And so even when you're proud and arrogant and aggressive and not being your brother's keeper, I was right there saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And because you ran those red lights, you don't just have one ticket, you have eight of them, because you ran through them all. And therefore, my judgment on you is just, but I was gracious to warn you, but in your proud, you ran through those red lights. So here's the point of today's lesson. God, help me. God, help you. Not to be proud and run through the red lights that God's saying to you right now. Don't be treating people that way. Don't be saying that. Don't be proud in their downfall. So that's the idea. Does that help you? Does that help you see this? So you say, well, what's what's the big deal about that? The big deal is we've got a big God. We have this unbelievable God who is so sovereign and yet so gracious that he sees it all, he knows it all, he knows our hearts, he sees our actions, and he's constantly warning the saved and the unsaved, your attitude and actions are proud. Stop it. Stop it. He's gracious to warn us, and he's just, to judge us when we run these red lights. So what's that mean for us? Here's the bottom line. Be your brother's keeper. Be your brother's keeper. And I want to help you this morning to dig up that bitter root so that you don't bear the brutal fruit and suffer the judgment of God. And so I'm going to give you four Ways to dig up that root. These are the the do-nots that you see in this passage. I'm, I'm not going to go through eight of them. I'm, I'm grouping them into four do-nots. And these are God speaking to our hearts saying, don't, do, don't be this way. Number one, don't be apathetic to the misfortune of others. Don't be apathetic to the misfortune of others. Look at verse 11. How did all this brutal... And condemnation from God began on the day that you stood aloof. On the day that you just stood and you watched and you did nothing. Wow. Uh, The New American Standard says on the day you stood aloof. I like New, New King James translates it in a slightly different way. On the day you stood on the other side. And the reason I like that is it reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. All the, 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 the two religious people saw the need and crossed to the other side. The Samaritan saw the need and went to it. That's the idea. So you stood aloof, you stood on the other side. And it also has the idea of Edom, on the day Israel was attacked, you chose the wrong side. You chose the wrong side. You should have run to your brother nation and helped them. Uh, Parents can relate to this idea. How many times as a parent have you said to your kids, don't just stand there. What? Do something. Okay, do something. Why? Because just standing there is the wrong thing to do. Okay? And here's what God's saying. Edom, you shouldn't have just stood there. You should have done something. You should have done the right thing, the godly thing, the brotherly thing. So Edom acted just like our kids do. Edom as a nation saw Judah under attack. They did nothing and they said, why are you mad at us? I didn't do anything. It's the Philistines. It's the Arabs. It ain't me. I didn't do anything. And you know what God says to that? Exactly what a parent says. You did nothing. That's the point. That's the point. You should have rushed in and shown mercy. So here's the principle. Passive indifference is the same as active participation. To remain passive when others hurt, those you are to care for. So when you see people who are in your covenant relationships and they are hurt, you need to rush in and care for them and... To not do that is the same as actively participating in hurting them. Look at the end of verse 11. You too were as one of them. What do you mean we didn't do anything? That's the point. Your passive indifference, your apathy to the misery of your brother nation condemns you. Now, this plays out in our own lives, and I thought about this illustration in my own life. Many Now, it seems, many years ago, there was a man in our church who came back to me after we had an antagonist in our church that was uh, slandering me, attacking my integrity, and really causing division in our church. And this man, not the antagonist, this man came back to me after all this had died down, and he said to me these words, I need to ask you... Forgiveness. I said, why is that? He said, when others gossiped and brought a bad report, I didn't join in, but I didn't speak up. I just listened. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I said, well, yeah, you're all, first of all, you're already forgiven. And I was just blown away because how rare is that kind of confession? How rare is that kind of repentance? How rare is it? But I knew in that moment when this man said this, that God had humbled him. God had humbled his heart with this warning. You, too, were one of them, meaning your passive listening. He, and I didn't explain that to him. God explained it to his heart, and then he confessed it to me. So that's where it begins, that kind of apathy, that kind of aloofness. But here is, if you don't deal with it like this man did, then it becomes number two, don't be arrogant towards the misfortune of others. Don't be arrogant to the misfortune of others. This progression is in verse 12. Do not gloat over your brother's day. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. Do not boast in their day of distress. So, in verse 12, we got three of the don'ts, but they all are about arrogance arrogance towards the misfortune of others. So, let's look at this chart and see. The arrogance is in gloating, rejoicing, and boasting. Okay, And when you think through each of these words is a different twist and there's a progression. When we gloat, the word for gloat there talks about mental smugness. It's the idea of dwelling on another's misfortune with smug satisfaction. Just kind of savoring. Oh, they got what they deserved. Oh, that's sweet. That's good. Dwelling on it. Mental smugness. And then that becomes... Emotional satisfaction, feeling a malicious joy in the misfortune of others. Not only am I dwelling on it, but I'm getting emotional satisfaction from their misery. And then that leads to boasting verbal superiority, expressing how deserving others are of their misfortune in a superior manner. So, the idea is, in, in gloating, it's about time. It was a long time fun coming, but they finally got what they deserve. Yeah, I feel good about that. Then, the emotional satisfaction. I'm glad their fall has finally come, and I'm enjoying every minute of their misery. And then, the verbal superiority. Well, see, they're so dumb, they're so foolish, they're so sinful, No wonder they got into this mess. While I, on the other hand, wouldn't be so foolish. I'm much more wiser. I'm much more successful. And that's what Edom was doing. See, Edom was rich. They were powerful. They're like, ah, weak little Judah. They're getting what they deserve. We are in our high, lofty dwelling. We have strong, mighty men. We have much wealth. Nobody can attack us. Stupid Judah getting what they deserve. Now, folks, all I'm saying is if you will let the Holy Spirit do his work this morning, you will see your heart up on this screen. And it's ugly. And God says it's ugly. And when we see it in others, we know it's ugly. The problem is God help me see it in me. Okay? And here's the thing, we're living in an age, and our kids especially, where social media just leverages this opportunity to show this kind of mental smugness, emotional satisfaction, and verbal superiority. We as Christians should be different. Amen? Whenever others are piling on, we should be showing mercy. Now, let me say very clearly, there's still doctrinal truth. We don't approve, it's not about approving sin. God is dealing with Judah's sin. We're not to excuse the sin, and we're not to try to alleviate the consequences. We're to rush in and show mercy and minister to hearts. Does this make sense? That's the idea. That's the idea. The judge, the divine judge, has graciously rendered his judgment. We don't need to pile on. They're already suffering. What we need to come in and say... Hey, here's why you're suffering, and I'd like to point you to the one who can alleviate it. Right? Make sense? Powerful stuff. Well, then it moves on. Not only from that. Well, well, let me let me just say this. Uh, basically, you could write. I thought. Now, how can I illustrate this? Basically, in sports, this is called trash talking. Am I not? Am I right? It's trash talking. You're going down, right? You're going down because I'm so much better. And, and you, you know, you, you, I don't know. I would love to have, I don't, maybe it's out there. I would love to hear NFL recordings of all the trash talking going on in there because they're all, that's what they're doing, okay? And here's the sad thing I don't know if that's good or bad in sports. I'm not an athletic guy, so I, I didn't play. I don't know. But here's the thing I know that in, in life, trash talking is not good. Okay, this is not what we are to be doing. And so, basically, here's the, the idea. We become proud rubberneckers, okay, and I'm sure Dane, you can, Dane probably has all sorts of police stories about rubbernecking. And, I mean, what do police try to do? Move on, nothing to see, move on when an accident happens. And this is basically what Edom was doing. They are like, oh, an accident. Let's move in and let's gloat over what's going on. All right? You mercy showers go, I can't even relate, but... You know rest of us sinners can okay we can relate, so let me give you two uh, things here here 's the idea here 's what rubbernecking is it 's when you keep turning your head where you should you should not look instead of keeping your eyes on the road and so when when people are in misery we don 't pile on we, we, we don 't need to rubberneck, and we don 't need to treat people 's misery like a roadside accident to Slow down, be carnal curiosity, and then drive on talking about how foolish they were. So I give you two warnings here. Don't look into the failures of others with carnal curiosity. What's that mean? If you're not part of the solution, you don't need to know about it. Don't, don't zoom in to gloat. And then secondly, don't look down on those who fall with proud hearts. So don't look into what isn't your concern, and don't look down on those who have fallen. Because Galatians 6.1 says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if any one thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So here's the idea. The only time to look down on your neighbor is when you're bending over to help them. That's the idea here. So I don't look down to gloat. I look down to help and to lift up. Now, if you don't deal with this, you go to the progression number three. Don't take advantage of the misfortune of others. So... Don't be apathetic. Apathy loses to arrogance. Arrogance will be you'll move in to take advantage. Look at verse 13. Now God is saying, "Oh, stop, stop. Don't enter the gate. Don't, don't do it. Don't go near. Don't enter the gate to do more gloating, but also do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster." So, instead of moving in to minister, and give hope they're moving in to take advantage and get what is not theirs. Wow. Now, in politics, this is called never let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) See, everybody's shaking their head. Oh, we get that. Yeah, there's a crisis, so you move in and you manipulate the people in the crisis to get more power and take more. Well, that's exactly what Edom did. But here's the thing, it's not just politicians, it's not just Edom, it's me and you, we do that. Let's leverage their misery for my advantage. Notice Israel's crossed a line, look at verse 13. Do not enter the gate of who? My people. So this isn't just horizontal liberalism. Let's love one another. The idea is this. Judah is in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And when you do them wrong, you're not only doing your brother wrong horizontally, but you've taken on Yahweh vertically. And so this is a powerful warning to us that when we attack our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are we attacking? The Lord. And the Lord takes notice of that. It also means... When Gentile nations in this world attack the church, who are they accountable to? The Lord. The Lord. So take hope in that. Take encouragement in that. Let's go to number four. Don't take action to increase the misfortune of others. Don't take action to increase. So, they took advantage, they looted, but now they go in for the kill. Look at verse 14. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down fugitives. That's murder. Do not imprison their survivals. survivors. That's enslavement. Here's the idea. Edom is threatening to exterminate the people of God. That's what, that's what they're doing. And God's not going to sit by... And let that happen. So here's what I ask you to do. May the Holy Spirit use his word this morning. These are red lights. Don't run through these. And say, Lord, I'm blind to my own sin. My heart is deceitfully wicked. Show me where I am being proud and unbrotherly or unsisterly to my covenant family here at Lifebridge, but also to my physical family family, and my family I live with. Well, that's the warning to the proud, but there's hope. There's hope for the humble, and so here it is. Here's your hope. Serve others. Serve others. In the previous lessons, we said the hope was seek humility. Well, when you seek humility, you're willing to serve others. So, instead of being apathetic, and standing aloof, instead of being arrogant and gloating, instead of being taking selfish advantage, instead of shamefully increasing the misery of others, move in and serve them like Christ has served us. And Philippians 2 is the key to all of this, okay? Philippians 2. So let me just give you, it's kind of the reverse of what we've seen. First of all, be there for others like Jesus is there for you. When you hurt, Jesus is there and he cares, and he hears. Listen, when others hurt, be there. Be there. I talked last week about being there for Gwen's mom to trim her trees. It's that simple. Jerry takes care of his mom, uh, who's uh, getting some tests, and things are going on. Takes him, takes uh, her there. I know Kim takes care of her widow mother. We can't all do that for our parents. Some, but 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 you just you just do what you can do. But what about our spiritual family? Be here for your spiritual family. Listen, post COVID, COVID has sifted God's people. There's people that still haven't come back. There's people that have come back now inconsistently. There's people that used to serve that came back and now don't serve. You and I need to be here. 90% of ministry is showing up on a consistent basis. You know what the other 10% is? Serve when you do show up. That's the other 10%. Number two, empathize with the problems of others like Jesus does. Empathize. We all need a graduate course in empathy, I'm convinced, except for you mercy showers. But even mercy showers can be unmerciful. Okay? But here's the idea. When someone is hurting, the last thing you want to say is, I'm glad that's not me. (laughs) That's not empathy. Okay? The other thing you don't want to immediately do is tell them how to fix it. Okay? Oh, I know someone who went through that, and here's what they did. The first thing we can do is say, oh, that must be hard. That makes me sad. How can I pray for you? Empathize. Be there. Jesus has empathized because he's faced every temptation. He's borne every burden in his incarnation. And he did it all without sin. And he did it all for the glory of God. Do what Jesus did. Number three. Do what you can to meet their needs like Jesus does. Do what you can. Now... The worst thing you can do here is this: don't get the don't prioritize meeting needs as a grocery list. So I, I heard it this week. You see it on social media. You hear it in sermons. Here's how you meet needs: God, family, church, community. But here's the thing: if you use the grocery list, you'll never get to the church. you you'll say, "Oh, I'm serving God." by serving my family oh and then if i have time left over a church and then if i have really a lot of time left over i might witness to lost people no instead of that christ is the center and think of a pie with all these cuts of pie and so sometimes family needs a bigger piece of the cut because of needs other times the church needs a bigger piece of the cut but we don't get to eliminate any of the pieces of the pie does that make sense That's what you need to do here. Because let me give you this illustration, then we'll have to conclude. Let me give you this illustration of Christ. Because I don't want you to leave this thinking, okay, I just got to serve my family, and if I show up to church, that's kind of icing on the cake. No, 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 because here's the deal. Listen, Jesus' family came to him, his mother and his brothers and sisters, and they said, you're acting like a crazy man, now come home. And what did Jesus say? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? The one who does the will of God. And he stayed put and ignored the needs of his family. Okay? Felt needs. But think about it: the pinnacle of his mission. He's on the cross. He's suffering like like the ultimate suffering, bearing the sins of the world. And he's, he's heaving on the cross. Every word causes him great physical pain as he lifts up and he says... John, look at my mom. She's yours now. Mom, look at John. He'll take care of you. So do you see the beauty of it? The Holy Spirit will lead you in this. But the tension is there. And then finally, just serve. Serve like Jesus, the most humble servant who was also our sovereign savior. Remember, Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Hey, folks, We need to be better servants. It means showing up consistently, and it means showing up to serve, because Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a sacrifice for many. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, this is divine surgery. May your Holy Spirit take your word, break the proud crust of our heart, penetrate to that bitter root Dig it up, let us see it, and let us bring it to you knowing you already know it's there. Others even know it's there. Lord, bring it to you in repentance. And then, Lord, help us to serve. Help us to serve like our Savior. Help us to show pity instead of piling on. Let us show mercy instead of mocking. Let us have a heart of compassion instead of cruelty to those in need. We pray this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.